0: One of the most impressive parts of Jurassic Park 3 is the jungle set. As a kid, I had no idea it wasn't completely shot on location. And it's convincing enough that they were able to cut between shots on location in Hawaii and shots on stage 12 at Universal Studios. It's tough to comprehend the scale of this built jungle and all the work that goes into it, but as you'll hear from some of the crew in just a moment, this wasn't your typical set.
1: So, uh, my name's Artist Robinson. I was the first assistant director on the film. Stage 12 at Universal Studios, which is, a, you know, one of the largest stages, probably the largest stage in Los Angeles. So. And we had a whole jungle in there, and we had a whole um, lighting scheme and environmental mist and haze and smoke and. So we could change at morning, noon and night. We had the the lights would pan as if it was the sun, you know, Shelly had that going. So we knew sunrise was this side of the stage today. And this is how the the work would go. Um, And then we would film scenes during the day. And then at night the art department would come in and pull up like uh, pieces of the floorboard that would be hidden compartments, they would pull them up the next day you come in and there would be a stream running through and water and- Oh wow. You know. So it was very challenging as far as scheduling goes to make sure that we had time to get the scenes and to get the changeover to make it look like we'd move somewhere else in the jungle. So we had amazing uh, art department and they um, with Ed and them and the, and the greens department obviously worked very hard on location and in the studio.
0: Robert, you were editing between shots on location and shots on the stage. Do you have any idea of what percent was shot on the stage versus on location in Hawaii?
2: 70% of the film that is on the island was shot on a soundstage. And I know that when they, so it must have been the summer, I know that when they, they, they did the first sequence, the, in the, you know, on in, in the soundstage is a grid. Above the floor, way up, forty feet. If it's a sixty-foot stage. Probably forty-five feet up. There's a grid so that the electricians and and grips can can put lights up there. So there were guys up there working. There was so much heat that they, they barely could work. It was 140 degrees at times. Yeah, and so they had to they had to bring in more air conditioners.
0: Shelly, you were going from a real location in Hawaii then to either Stage 12 or Falls Lake, both at Universal Studios. How difficult was it to match that look and the lighting?
3: When you think about it, it's really rather simple. You know, since a lot of our stuff was in the day, I I just broke down, okay, what are the elements of 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 daylight photography? There's hard sunlight and there's soft skylight overhead. That's pretty much it. and so really all I did was on our scouting trips to Hawaii, because all the stuff, one wrinkle was it was, I had a feeling this stuff was going to intercut with Hawaii. At the time they said, oh no, nothing's going to intercut. Everything's going to be a direct cut from, from something on stage to something totally new on the island. We'll never cut from one side of the scene on stage, to the other side of the scene on the island. We'll never, ever do that, which of course we ended up doing that quite a lot, <laughs> but at the time they, they said, no, that we're, we're going to be very careful about how we do this. And so um, when we went to Hawaii, I took my, my light meter and my color temperature meter, and I took all the readings of Hawaiian light, kind of got to know the ratios and the color separation and how the Hawaiian light worked, because like, I had measurements of all that stuff. So really, I just duplicated those same measurements on stage. And, and, uh, and then once I had that in there, I could then adjust it.
0: Is there any insight you can share into how Joe Johnston viewed this, like filming indoors instead of on location?
3: It was the biggest stage in LA at the time, I believe. It was, it was 50 feet high, and a couple hundred feet by 150 feet, or something like that. We had the whole thing just built right up to the rafters with this jungle, and um, so I had I, I had to squeeze my lights up there. So I had I, I created a skylight and a bunch. I had hundreds of lights up there that were highlights, and I had this company called Mole Richardson make me a special. Kind of what they call a beam projector um, to create all of our uh, sunlight uh, effects, our shafts that would come through the, the trees, and those were all movable and on uh, these you know large track tracking baskets that were up there. We had guys that were like eight or nine of them in this in this basket. We had four of them all over the stage, and we could we can move them anywhere. And because uh, because one of the rules that Joe told me on this stage was. He said, okay, if, if, if I'm going to make all the sacrifices of working on stage and not having the depth that I need and having everything be too small, I want some of the advantages of working on stage. For instance, he said, Shelly, I want to be able to look this way north and then look south and then look north again, you know, on, on a shot. So shot number shot A, north, shot B, south, shot C, north again. And I don't want to have to relate. I don't have to wait for relights. You know, we're on stage. You should be able to light all the directions and just make it so I can look anywhere I want. So he said, "Give me that freedom." So I said, "Okay, great. That, that's fair." And uh, so I had part of what he what he told me, and this is you know from his experiences, you know, making so many films, and you know, it was he wanted the freedom to look any direction at any time and not wait?
0: How much of the jungle was real, like living plants?
3: Okay, so these plants were, they were all living plants. They were alive. Only like the biggest banyan trees were, were built. Everything else was all green. So they were all potted. And so because the misters, it, it was coming down, they're basically. We were in that stage, I think, for three months. We were on and off. We, we, we'd come on, we'd shoot for a few days, then we'd leave, and they'd, they'd, they'd move the set around and make it look like something different. Then we'd come back on, shoot for a few more days. We, so we were constantly on and off that set, you know, with, with adjustments to the Spinosaurus and all that stuff. That took days. So over that three-month period, that stage kind of created its own ecosystem. And new, weird plants started to grow, and weird little creatures started to appear. They were hatching. <laughs> it was—it it, it was actually a, a weird jungle, and and with all kinds of critters starting to show up. <laughs> it was so. Whenever you set up a, you know a, uh, you know a low angle, you know at the base of this palm, chances are you'd find something crawling on you that you'd never seen before. <laughs> it's like, what is this? Yes.
0: Are there any shots from stage twelve that you feel? that most looks like an on-location shot.
3: There's a shot of, um, it's a really simple shot, but it shows the whole jungle set that we had on stage 12 at Universal. It was, uh, it's just, it's when, uh, um, Trevor's walking, he has a a big claw Mm -hmm. (laughs) of a raptor, and, and, uh, he's walking with Sam, and I think they're on their way to their, uh, to that little water truck where he stays, or either just left the water truck, and, and, uh, um, you know sam says oh gee i uh you know i have a fossil uh of just like that of that claw and then trevor says "Yeah, you know, but mine's real <laughs> or something like that you know and uh, they're walking along and and it's a shot that starts tight and kind of grows wider and wider and wider as they're walking and that's that's on stage and that was i think one of our more successful stage shots um that and there's a shot where they see like the spinosaurus footprint and they're you know, they we can tilt up and kind of see them standing there. And, you know, there's some stuff we did on stage that I'm really happy with where uh, you can't really tell. That's all artificial lighting. It's all indoors. It, it, um, and that's that's some of that stuff I, I, I'm i proud of. I could probably I could do it again now. I, I could probably do it better than I did then. Um, and certainly with digital format, there's a l- few different techniques we'd, we'd do that'd be a little different. I'd probably make it look a little better. Um but yeah, it's uh, uh, it's easy to be critical about your own work for sure.
0: Production designer Ed Vero.
4: It was pretty seamless between cutting from a uh, part of the jungle over on the Kaneohe side of Oahu and cutting to stage 12 or cutting to one of the other stages uh, because of the way we built the sets and also because of the way Shelley lit them. Um, he, he really really uh did a you know made a, a a point i think of trying to create source sunlight
0: so how do you compare this set to maybe a set you've seen on other films
4: you know created a pretty good uh a pretty good uh, illusion of uh the jungle. There's lots of times you get on, on sound stages that you know are supposed to be jungles and stuff and they, they, they kind of don't look right. So you'll look at somebody standing and there will be four or five shadows or you know, two or three shadows around them. And even if you don't consciously know that that's wrong, I think subconsciously there's a part of us that goes, there's something wrong here. There's something wrong with the way this looks. And uh, Shelley really, really uh, solved that really greatly.
5: My name is Doug Mierdink. Um I worked uh, as an art director on Jurassic Park 3. The biggest set we had was on stage 12. Its proximity was that stage backs up to the theme park that, you know, where all the rides are, and it backs up to the Jurassic Park ride. And so, as we employees would work 10, 12-hour days at this stage, all day long in a loop we heard the Jurassic Park park theme song over and over, coming from the theme park. So you're like, you're working on Jurassic park, but you're also hearing that the theme song over at, you hear it in your sleep after a while. You like, so it, it was a, a little bit, maybe a little too immersive at that point but it was uh just memorable that every time you walk, oh man i gotta go to stage 12 i'm gonna hear that song 30 times before i get off that stage but it was still a just anecdote <laughs> of working on it okay so i have to ask how often
0: would you just go and ride the jp river ride
5: yeah just between you and me and whoever is listening there was there used to be a um this little gap. It was like a little alleyway that was like in a service area. And I think it was known to the studio too. I think they allowed it, but where you could sneak through and you could get to the park and you could get on the rides and get, could... and we didn't do that. Maybe at a lunchtime or something, we did that, but um, not to call out Ed Vareau, but his son, Connor, who was uh, just a fantastic kid who would visit us in the art department. Now a fully grown man, of course, but he would come and we'd just be excited to like, Hey, you know, our, our art department coordinator, uh, Beth Bajuk would, would grab him and maybe take him on a ride there. And then they'd come. So yeah, there was, there was a little crossover there. You could, um, you could, uh, partake in the, you know, not just listen to the song, but jump on the ride now and then. Trevor, you're a kid
0: on a Jurassic park set right next to the Jurassic park river ride. How often were you going on that?
6: Um, That was something that I did on a daily basis at lunch um, when we were shooting on studio, yeah. Uh, One of the coolest things about Universal at that time and the producers of the film um, were that as much as they knew that they had a job to be done, they always remembered to know that I was a kid. So every chance that they had to, like, get to sneak me into Universal Studios to go ride a ride and sneak me to the front of the line to go have fun on my lunch break or on my off day or have me and my, my siblings go to Universal um, or my friends go to the studios and go ride the rides and go have fun, they, they took no exception in allowing me that freedom and, and giving, me, giving me that. I turned 14 on the film, and uh, I was obsessed with um, blues. Um, okay, I played guitar, and I was obsessed with blues blues musicians. And one of my favorites was BB King. And it just so happened that uh, he was playing at BB King restaurants at um, Universal City Walk, and they made sure that I could get to go see him that night. And Even got made sure that I got to go meet him. For an already fantastic, like, think think of how fantastic that is that you get to be a part of Jurassic Park just in general. Like, as an adult, if I got hired in the new one, I'd be like, oh, great. But as a kid who saw the first one in the theaters, you know, you're living your dream and, you know, getting to go to work every day with – animatronic dinosaurs was already the coolest thing in the world but then to take it a step further and be able to let me go enjoy the rides and get the souvenir king kong cups at the at the universal studios you know every day it was the it was one of the greatest moments
0: of my life yeah The river sequence. The boat slowly moves along the river and we start to get hints that Mr. Curry can be a leader. With nobody even asking, Paul says out loud the plan. A bit of plot reinforcement, if you will.
7: Plenty of gasoline. No, just gotta make
5: our way to the coast. Work out some sort of, some sort of a signal. Build a fire or something, something to see from the air.
0: Meanwhile, Grant, Still reeling from the death of Billy, sits alone. Just reflecting on the tragedy of his student and his failings as a teacher and a leader. I love the conversation between Alan and Eric, and I want more. You know what the last
1: thing I said to him was,
7: I said, You're as bad as the people that built this place. Which wasn't true. Billy was just young. I have a theory that there are two kinds of boys. There are those that want to be astronomers and those that want to be astronauts. The astronomer, the paleontologist, gets to gets to study these amazing things from a place of complete safety.
8: But then you never get to go into space.
7: Exactly. It's the difference between imagining and seeing. Be able to touch them. That's... That's all wanted.
0: And then the music changes, the sun shines, and we are treated to a glorious shot of dinosaurs just hanging out having a good time. Sure, I've heard the comments on the look of the dino, the CGI, the colors, but I can pretty much overlook any issues with this moment because I understand the purpose of the scene, and I can appreciate the beauty of it. Eric says, Know
9: something, Dr. Grant?
5: Billy was right.
0: Grant and JP1 love dinosaurs. Then they tried to kill him. In the third film, he once again hates the engine dinosaurs, and now he's just witnessed his friend and student get viciously destroyed by pteranodons. But this brief moment somewhat restores his love for dinos and reminds him there is indeed beauty in this Jurassic Park. As mentioned in an earlier episode, for years I had JP3 newspaper and magazine reviews on my wall. A lot of them are surprisingly upbeat, entertaining, and occasionally have a Backstreet Boys or Bill Clinton reference. So here's one of my favorites. Title, Relax, It's Just Another Movie with Dinosaurs, by Joanna Connors of the Cleveland Plain Dealer. By the time a movie franchise plants a number three after its title, no one expects a whole lot. It's true, some sequels have equaled or surpassed the originals. Godfather 2 comes to mind. But by number three, we all know the tank will be low on gas. Godfather 3 comes to mind. It's a sequel to a sequel, after all. Our example today, Jurassic Park 3. Remember the excitement over the computer-created dinos when the first film came out? The lines at the box office, the fast-food tie-ins, You couldn't buy a roll of toilet paper without getting dinosaurs etched on every sheet. Gone. Over. Cold as the Backstreet Boys singing to a half-empty football stadium. I was offering a free ticket and I still couldn't get anyone to go with me. My 15-year-old son looked at me as though I was out of my mind. Okay, bad example. A 15-year-old wouldn't go to see Indians in Game 7 of the World Series if it meant sitting next to his mother. Pause for a moment. That's not true. I mean, I would... Game 7, if you're a Cleveland Indians fan, that's ridiculous. So, all right, back to the review. A friend was, in quotes, I'm busy, end quote. I threw in popcorn. My husband just looked at me with pity. Quote, I know how it ends, he says, with the lead-in to Jurassic Park 4, end quote. He was right on that one. In fact, the end of Jurassic Park 3 leaves open the possibility of total dinosaur world domination but he was wrong on the pity thing. Jurassic Park 3 is a pleasant surprise. It's actually fun. Relieved of the aura of importance conferred by the name of Steven Spielberg above the title and the groundbreaking technology on screen, the movie has a chance to sit back, pop open a brewski, and loosen up. With Joe Johnston directing instead of Spielberg, JP3 embraces its B-movie inner child and accepts itself for what it is, a Godzilla movie with better dubbing. First sign of a good time? It clocks in at a swift 92 minutes. The first JP lasted 127 minutes, and I'm pretty sure the credits will roll any minute now in the Lost World Jurassic Park. Second sign. It jettisons Michael Crichton's pondering on pure science, the corrupting influence of corporate greed, and the hubris of humans tampering with nature. It briefly tips its hat to the author when Samuel grumbles, this is what you get when you play God. But since a velociraptor is at that very moment drooling over him like Marlon Brando at the dessert cart, oh, that's kind of mean. Whew. It loses most of its deep thought intonation. Third sign. The screenwriting credits include Alexander Payne and Jim Taylor, who wrote the brilliant satire Election. And the cast includes William H. Macy, who can spin a line better than a Bill Clinton press secretary. Pause. Author Joanna Connors then goes into kind of like recapping the major plot. And back to the review. They run from the dinosaurs. The dinosaurs catch one or two in their big jaws. Macy is amusing. Payne and the other writers come up with a few good laughs. It lasts 92 minutes. It's air-conditioned. It's summer. No one has a test tomorrow. Pass the popcorn.
10: I'm Jess. I'm your wife here to partake in this Jurassic Park 3 podcast.
0: Is it pretty normal to find me watching JP3?
10: On a nightly basis, I would say. If, if I'm out and I come home, I expect to see Jurassic Park 3 or one of them on TV. Most Mostly three.
0: How do you describe Jurassic Park 3, and do you like it?
10: Yeah, it's a fun movie. It's it's kind of in a category of its own. I don't really know how else to put it.
0: By no choice of your own and also no fault of your own, you've probably seen JP3 more than any of my listeners.
10: I, I would agree with that. And honestly, probably more than I've seen the first one.
0: So you're pretty much an expert in this area.
10: Oh, gosh. I hope not. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how do you feel about the river sequence?
10: It's terrifying. Every time I see it, it's I mean, it's the climax, right? It's the it's the peak of the movie and the the height of the character's actions and coming to their change.
0: What does this river sequence mean to the character of Paul Kirby?
10: Well, so you have Mr. Kirby. He's, you know, he starts... I don't want to make fun of him or anything, but he, he starts off as a weak character. He is not the male lead. And then all of a sudden... He's not going anywhere. He is the hero of that scene, for sure. A big event like that has to happen for that character to progress and move forward. And this once weak, you know, beginning, he couldn't even...
0: Put on his backpack?
10: Yes, that is a comedic scene. (laughs) And now, all of a sudden, he's distracting a Spinosaurus and saving his family.
0: He's hes allowed to be a part of the family again. (laughs) Right?
10: In fact, she says, don't leave me alone. So, yes, it's, it's not allowed to be part of the family. It's not how I would put it. He's proven himself for her.
11: I'm uh, Brady Crane, and I am the co-host of the Jurassic Park Minute podcast, and that is a show uh, that we did where we, my co-host and I, who was my brother, uh, we would break down the movie Jurassic Park minute by minute, so every episode of the show was reviewing and analyzing every minute of the movie, and it came out to, I think, about exactly 100 episodes, but it was a lot of fun, but... Kind of uh, daunting in the fact that that movie is much more complex than I ever thought it would be. And I knew it was a really good movie. It's very sophisticated. It, it balances adventure and um, in some cases, you know, philosophy really well. But it wasn't until we got really down into the nitty gritty that we found out this is there's so much more to this movie. Uh, than what's on the surface. It's not pretentious. It doesn't put it in, you know, all out there in your face. So it's, it's one that you really kinda gotta go into and dissect a little bit and you're always gonna get something else out of it. And it's really kind of tied up in my identity. I mean, it really influenced who I became as one of film lover, but also just, I don't know, uh, something I can't really articulate, but it was it had such a profound impact on me. But The Lost World, for me, anyway, I wrestled with it for a long time, and it it was just always sort of this obscure thing, and I I still can't quite put my finger on why it didn't really, why it was kind of a misstep for me. So whenever a third movie was announced, I said, okay, I'm going to go into this cautious, I don't want to get my hopes up or whatever, and went and saw it and just absolutely did not understand it. And I remember thinking when I walked out, God, I miss Michael Crichton. Like, I know he was still alive at the point, but his presence wasn't really in that movie. And, uh, I didn't really find myself wrestling with whether or not I understood it or liked it or whatever, because at that point coming out of the movie, Jurassic Park was just sort of non-existent for me. And it was no more part of this thing that was, um, made me, me. And so it was several, several, several years of just kind of having it in the back of my mind and thinking, um, what is it about that movie, that third installment that just didn't, i didn't really do it for me. Is it the fact that it was too silly? Is it the fact that you can definitely tell it had a troubled production? Um, what What is it that didn't do it for me? And so over time, and this isn't me just like, I don't know, buttering up the show or anything like that, but I watched the movie tonight before we recorded. Uh, and I think that aside from the first film, which is sort of untouchable, you know, it's the first film or whatever, it's always going to be that way. I think Jurassic Park 3 would be the one that I would go to first to watch any of these Jurassic movies. I think it's a really, really f-ing good movie. <laughs> Sorry, I don't know if we can curse. But um, I, think it's, I think it's a really good movie, and I can understand why people don't really understand it, and certainly why they didn't understand it coming out. Because there had been such a uh, benchmark set by, you know, the guy who cannot do any wrong, Steven Spielberg. And I think people were expecting... Um, something, like I said, kind of philosophical, yet fun, like the first movie. If they really liked that kind of dark edginess of the second movie, they were expecting that. And they got a really, really, really funny uh, movie that knew exactly what it wanted to be. And that's just a chase movie that is about, it's, it's a simpler movie. It's a Joe Johnston movie. And I think if people had known going into it, hey, this isn't a Spielberg thing they probably would have been a little bit more receptive to it. And I think that the movie probably should have been sold as such. It probably should have been sold as something that's a little more lighthearted. This is a different fare than what has come before. So going into this theater, you need to know that. And I think that the world might have probably received the movie a little bit uh, better than it did.
0: Now, I realize I'm pretty kind to Jurassic Park 3, and I've definitely skipped over a couple of moments that bothered me, even on the first viewing. Just before the aviary sequence, the group reunites after Eric and Alan hear the Kirby ringtone. Nothing wrong with that, and I love that the two groups run to each other on opposite sides of the fence. But my 13-year-old self, I remember the group being chased into the building and watching them lock all of the locks in the door. And I thought it was meant to be a comedic moment. Much like the moment in Live Free or Die Hard, when Justin Long is locking the door as a group of terrorists are shooting and busting through the walls, the viewer knows locking the door is pointless. And even John McClane says, Are you
2: f***ing nuts? Get out of there right now! now!
0: And yes, that was my second time referencing a diehard film in this podcast. So anyways, I just assumed that the Spino would destroy that building completely. Now that I'm older and have extensively studied and researched the strength of a steel door in a tropical climate, I actually don't mind it. I can watch the film and understand the spinal might not have the power to bust open that door. But regardless, soon after the aviary sequence, we get a moment that does actually still bother me. The poop scene. There are some great shots of the boat just slowly moving along the river. And of course, I wanted more of this. Seeing more of the island from this point of view, the boat moving along, seeing buildings, boats destroyed, sinking in the water, there's a lot more that could have been done. Suddenly, in the distance, we hear the Kirby Paint and Tile Plus ringtone. Obviously not a great sign, considering the last time we heard this ringtone, the Spino was standing right behind them. Luckily, the camera moves and we discover the ringing is coming from a massive pile of Spino poop or multiple piles.
12: Find it it stops in a nice callback to the
0: first film, Alan Paul and Amanda hop off the boat and dig in and they eventually find the phone. But a tricycle plot approaches. Look out! The dino stops, sniffs, catches the scent of the spino, and then almost like looks at the camera like nope and just slowly walks away. I can't explain it properly, but there's something about this moment that even as a 13-year-old, it bothered me. You know when you're a kid and you're watching a movie with your parents or grandparents and suddenly the film is something random or like graphic or violence or a sex scene, kind of like that but without the violence or sex. Just the same after effects. To me, it just all feels out of place much more than the Alan Dream sequence. Thankfully, this moment is followed up by the very impressive Spino River attack. In what I consider to be a stunning blend of animatronics and CGI, this sequence shares similarities with the T-Rex breakout of JP1 in that the filmmakers have crafted a setting that really allows the dinos to come across as real as possible. Setting the river attack at night, adding in the rain, they're able to cover up most of the flaws in the 2001 CGI as well as limit some of those two robotic moments you get with the Spino during the plane crash attack. Is it perfect? Well, it's pretty close.
8: My name is Brenda Watchell, and I was the script supervisor on Jurassic Park 3.
0: Filming on location in the jungle, the challenges beyond just getting to the filming location, you also have the environment, the weather, mud, insects.
8: Other things that were challenging from a production standpoint that um, when we were on the island of Kauai, our location was about an 45 minutes to an hour down this river. I think it was a river. I'm not sure. Maybe we took smaller boats to this big, huge boat that's like a flat boat, river boat, where we were sort of basing off of. And we shot there, and they would bring boxed-in lunches, which has just kind of become the standard in the film industry. But at the time, it was like, boxed lunch. We don't get to go sit down and eat. (laughs) It was fine, but it, it was more like a... It, the amount of energy and money and organization that goes into making a film like that when you're in remote locations that are not easy to get to and you have a hundred people or more or, or a little less depending on the day that all have to survive and work all day long and be physically able and the amount of, of of coordination and thought that it takes is kind of fascinating if you think about it, that there's this whole whole team behind that's making sure everyone is okay so they can do their job to get that film made that day. But it, I mean, they're also the amazing places, the things I've seen that I would have never seen. It rains there a lot, right? And Jungle Canyon, where you go down to get to this area, and all of the equipment, it was super muddy, and we were in mud boots and slipping and falling, and all the equipment had to be cabled in from above. That was the first time I'd ever seen that, you know, to... But I had not been on a large Jurassic Park movie before. So that was a particularly hard location because you—you to get out of there was quite a deal to hike up up out in the mud to slog around in mud and carry mud around. It's heavy to have at the time we we weren't in the digital age yet. So I was still hand in paper. So the idea of like, if you drop something, it just goes in the mud. It's your whole script. It's all of those pages that you kept that you're supposed to keep neat and clean from the the first day of shooting till the day 120 or whatever it is. It's a lot you know and that they don't tear out of your binder these are like little silly you know problems that nobody thinks about but these are like the stupid headaches you have when you're shooting in uh, more difficult locations and there's water and mud and no place to protect things and you know you sit down in your chair and it sinks six inches into the ground (laughs) and you're a filthy mess when you go home it's not, it's not a glamorous business, I hate to tell you.
0: <laughs> With the rain pouring down, the boat moves along the canyon. No music, just the sound of rain and thunder. Eric leans over the boat as he watches a school of fish moving very quickly in the water. Hey guys, come here, Something come here. else I've come to appreciate having watched this many times is the sound.
10: Juanitas. Get the edge
2: going, Mr. Kirby!
0: The thunder and rain are more than enough to keep you on edge. Even the sound of Paul Kirby trying to start the boat, it's irritating in a way that lets you know badness is about to happen. Alan picks up the phone, and (sighs) with only enough battery life for one call, he calls Dr. Ellie Sattler. Unfortunately, Charlie answers.
9: Hello?
13: Ellie!
10: Charlie! 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 Take the phone to mommy now! Take the phone to mommy! It's It's the dinosaur man!
0: This is of course another example of putting our heroes up in a tree and throwing rocks at them. Constantly things do not go the way the heroes would like, and they don't go the way they'd like because good old Charlie is distracted. Why is he so distracted? Well, Barney. Yes, Barney the Purple Dinosaur. What's interesting to me about having Barney appear in this film is that Barney is in this film. I was really hoping I'd be able to interview someone with actual knowledge of when this was added because the entire sequence would work without Barney. A simple edit could remove Barney, and Charlie could just exit the house and give the phone to Ellie. Or he could struggle to get out. Like, I just want to know why Barney's in this film. So if you know, send me an email. So on one hand, you could convince me that adding Barney into the sequence is the genius of Joe Johnston and him doing something different. Watching the film as some B-movie black comedy, it does work perfectly, but still, learning about when this was added into the script would be extremely interesting to me.
11: The Barney thing, well, I think um, a lot of people probably said, okay, a boat sequence we're finally going to get a proper like boat sequence like kind of like what we had in the first book and here it is on the screen and i mean i think it definitely surpassed any sort of expectations i had had of what we could get from people being trapped on the water and a dinosaur attack uh not to give away anything from the book but there is a moment where the t-rex it starts to come after a life raft with grant and the kids in it and there's one point where it's underwater they think hey maybe it. Maybe it's safe or whatever. And here comes the head rising out of the water and knocks right into the boat. Well, it was kind of reminiscent with the visual of the, spin, um, the fin, excuse me, kind of coming up out of the water and letting you know everything that's right underneath them at that moment. And so, anyway, whenever I saw that we we're going to have a boat sequence in this, I said, okay, finally, this is this is going to be great. This is going to be great. And then Barney, just out of nowhere. And I love that that levity that's dropped in right at like one of the most rousing parts of the entire
0: movie beyond Barney, what else about this river sequence works for you there are parts where the blending of
11: cgi and animatronic i almost can't tell i think uh the fact that they kind of split up our heroes they give william h macy um a point to like really be the hero. I think for like the first time in the movie, he really steps up and does something. And hanging off the crane, it's great. It's it's awesome. Uh, you've got Alan Grant pulling kind of a Chief Brody move there at the end and firing the the one shot he has to take out the spinosaurus, and then it runs off into the jungle. And our main antagonist of the entire movie uh, lives. And runs off and it was just sort of like okay well I didn't get a rousing explosion of the animal or anything like that not that I needed that but it was sort of something that I don't know I was expecting I guess and nothing it just sort of runs off so I've always wondered what their plan was if they had one or why we got such a uh I don't know it it just seems like there wasn't really a payoff for this and for this awesome sequence we've just been on
0: how do you feel about Barney being in this film?
10: Thinking back to, like, the first time or a couple times, because I couldn't tell you when that was, I saw it. It doesn't... It it just makes perfect sense to me. I don't, I don't know exactly when this came out, but to have a four-year-old little boy watching Barney... Wait, wait, did you
0: say you don't know exactly when this movie came out? <laughs> wait, 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 right? wait. Did you just say you don't know... <laughs> Exactly, when Jurassic Park 3 came out?
10: I mean, I assume early 2000s.
0: What is going on? Did you not listen to any of the... You've listened to the podcast.
10: It doesn't mean I, rem- I memorized every line. Oh. Just <laughs>
0: yes. this pod... Everyone listening, shake your head with me. Just start shaking your head. Shame on my wife, who has seen this movie probably more times than you, because she has no choice.
10: That might be true, but... When you're watching the movie on screen, it doesn't display across, it doesn't flash across. <laughs> it's this true. came out in 2000 and whatever. True,
0: true, true, but but I do.
10: Because this <laughs>
0: this episode was the first podcast episode was released on the 20th anniversary oh, of Jurassic yeah. Park oh, 3. yeah, that that's that that's helps you. Out. Yeah. That, that, you rem- that's do you remember that true. now?
10: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I remember that now. Okay. That makes sense. Okay,
0: all right. So, Barney, what are your thoughts?
10: Um, it definitely takes me out of the tear, but i don't know i kind of appreciate the little break from it and it's the juxtaposition works well for me it's Um. the night and day of i mean literally it's night on the boat and day morning it's a morning at um, ellie's house hanging out getting her kid ready saying goodbye to the hubby and uh, it's It's very normal, so then to go back over to this madness occurring at Site B, I mean, it's... I'm fine with it.
0: Okay, Trevor, so half-joking here, but looking through your filmography, I've noticed you've been in two movies with dinosaurs, and they both feature Barney. Was that something on your end where it was required in your contract that Barney must appear?
6: No, I don't know where that came from. I have no idea where that came from that they added the Barney thing. I think maybe it was an inside joke.
0: Well, that that was my other question. Like, do you recall if that was added later? or Is that something you didn't even know about?
6: I don't remember knowing about that. I, I remember thinking it was funny when I saw it in theaters.
0: In the moments before the Spino attacks the boat, we are treated to another one of my many favorite shots, a clear Jaws reference. We have the sail of the Spino rising out of the water and approaching the boat just as the music fades in and then quickly rises as the Spino makes contact with the boat. Poor Paul Kirby falls over and smacks his face. Grant throws the phone and ends the call. The Spino rises fully from the water and smashes the boat as our heroes climb into the cage. Clearly not ideal, But as we've seen in the previous aviary sequence, they have no other logical choice and they do what they have to do. The boat tips and the cage starts to move off the boat towards the water. Suddenly, the phone rings. As the boat tips, the phone slides away and then back towards them. Grant reaching out, grabbing it as the cage of heroes has fallen into the river. With only seconds before being completely submerged, Grant answers the phone call and yells Also, there is gasoline pouring into the river. That's important. The shots of the spinal claws reaching into the cage and slashing at Mrs. Kirby are terrifying and wonderful. The only issue I have is that she is clearly injured. I mean, we hear her clothes ripping and we see blood in the water, but unfortunately in the following moments, she seems completely uninjured. But anyways, seeing an animatronic function in the water is not something I thought much of until I spoke with the crew.
2: My name is David Bonzingo, and uh, on Jurassic Park 3, I worked as a key artist at Stan Winston studio uh, making dinosaurs.
0: Do you remember any, maybe, behind-the-scenes challenges or stories just, like, filming with a spino in water?
2: A kind of a funny story. I'm forgetting the story in terms of how it happens, but I remember, I just remember there was a spinosaur ends up in the water, and, like, they like the, like the lair in the water, the fire, and so... So they were, they were moving the Spinosaur into the tank where they're going to fill go. this. And John Rosengren, had, you know, uh, it's very his management style is very assertive, <laughs> I'll, I'll say. I think it's pretty dramatic, and, uh, and the tank that they were in, there was a steep drop-off where the Spinosaur was going to go because it had to completely submerge under the water. And they were bringing the Spinosaur in with the crane. And someone was like, hey, hey, be careful, be careful, John. Because it seemed like he was walking close to the drop-off. Like, I know what I'm doing! And then John fell off. <laughs> and he was like, and uh, he, had been, he was wearing, like, fisherman's hip waders. And uh, I guess when he fell off, his hip waders filled up with water. He had to be pulled out. And then he was just, and he was wearing this kind of puffy sweater that kind of filled up with water. And when he got out, <laughs> and, like the sleeves were dragging on the ground.
9: Well, I'm John Rosengrant. I'm one of the owners of Legacy Effects. And on JP3, I was the um, animatronic supervisor for Stan Winston's studio at the time.
0: I'm now realizing that building an animatronic that large and building it in a way that allows for it to function when in water is not a simple feat. How different was it to construct the Spinosaurus than any other dinosaur?
9: With the Spinosaur, we knew it was going to be in water So the head, I I had us make it, so the front long snout of it is basically more like a hard rubber. It's not soft foam rubber. And so a lot of that head is just pure rubber because it didn't have much motion out of him. It's like a big crocodile. It was around his eyes and his head wasn't going to go underwater. But that snout, which was enormous. I mean, the head of that thing was, was big. I think the T-Rex's head was like six foot long and this thing was even bigger than that. But the scenes at Falls Lake when it's sticking its head in the water and it's displacing water and moving it around, I'd be hard pressed to see anything as convincing in CG because you've got this big, huge 24,000 pound machine displacing this water. Yeah, in such a realistic fashion that uh, I don't know anybody would ever have the appetite to do something like that again today, but I think it, it really goes down as the classic. You're never going to see that again, probably. Big live action dinosaur doing those type of things. That, that was probably the big last hurrah for that in, uh, you
13: know, giant... Animatronic dinosaurs uh, my name is Anthony Schaefer. I started out as assistant technical director and I became the technical director, a technical director on Jurassic Park 3 at Industrial Light and Magic.
0: Earlier in the podcast you spoke about your work on the Spino vs T-Rex fight and the importance of like having the dinosaurs match with the scene, how they interact with the vines, the jungle floor. Was your work on the river sequence just as challenging?
13: You know, with water, you're dealing with these really high hot specular highlights and then you have like inset lighting you have all, all these kind of attributes that make water look like water and as soon as it's not right it no longer looks like water it looks like you know shaving cream or <laughs> fake uh, effectively it doesn't look like what it needs to be um and one of the another cool thing about jp3 and i don't think if it was I don't think it came on with jp3 but it might have was hdr lighting um and uh extended range imagery um that those particular sequences were really pushing the limits of of hotter highlights that go above the value of one you know a computer can only display you know all white one or all black zero but light isn't like that light you know, is hotter than one. And so um, the uh, EXR format was largely created in that time frame to solve that problem exactly, which is like, how do you get um, film which can expose multiple stops, up to 12 or more stops higher than what a computer can do? And as soon as you combine the two, suddenly your computer what you we thought was white looks like middle gray and it looks just bad and so a number of uh techniques were developed and uh, some new mathematical formulas uh, Fourier transforms and so forth were um involved in building out a new image format which is now an industry standard luckily they they open sourced it and we used a lot of techniques on there like water going down like the crane and so forth um they use, like, a, a noise field, a, a specific noise field. And that same technique we used on Davy Jones um, when he's at the end of the sequence when he's in the rain and he's yelling at his pirates and stuff. Same exact thing. I mean, it's like, we just reuse this stuff over and over again until someone catches on or the technology advances.
0: It's now been over 20 years since you worked on this film. Do your kids have any interest in the Jurassic Park films or any of the others you've worked on?
13: Oh, yeah, so my youngest uh just recently got heavy into Star Wars. So we rewatched them all. Well, not not all of them. We rewatched um the original trilogies and then up to 2. wait, 3 is a little intense for him, so we haven't watched 3 yet. You know, I think he needs to see Darth Vader melting. Um and it it brings up a lot of questions. Uh, brings up a lot of stories. You know, being one of the cool things about ILM, for the longest time, when they were shooting, at, the stage, uh, at at in Santa Fe, you could be extra, you could be an extra in in the films if the need came up. So, I um was able to be, uh, a guard in Episode One and uh, the Dead Jedi in Episode Two. Uh, that. Ewan McGregor, yeah, checks the pulse of because they forgot to shoot him. Uh and then um a mourner in the Jar Jar sequence in episode three. You know, it's usually the production coordinators that just need someone for a half a day or whatever, and they'll call you up and say, Hey, can you do you have time to do this? And it's kind of it was one of the perks, like, you know, I get benefits. Oh yeah, and I get to be extras in movies too. <laughs> um and I got a call once to be Darth Vader for for episode three because was that when he broke out of the chains and said no uh was not uh, yeah fan was not sitting well with the fans so they're like we got to reshoot this sequence for the movie and so the coordinator i knew the coordinator for episode three and she called me and said hey you want to be darth vader i'm like yes she's like okay yeah come to the stage and um, i'm like oh my god this is amazing like i I get to like fulfill all my dreams of being, of working on Star Wars and being in Star Wars. And then she's like, oh, oh, one second. Like, how tall are you? And I'm like, "Oh, five, ten and a half. She's like, ah, you have to be 5'11. I'm like, what? Wait a second. Hey, you don't have to be 5'11. Like, put a little lift on there. She's like, no, it's just proportional. Just like it was a requirement. I'm like, no. Uh, so instead, I got put next to Jar Jar and I was horribly dis- disappointed, but still, you know, perks. Some are good, some aren't so good,
0: <laughs> so are you saying they were actually reshooting some of the film while it was already out in theaters?
13: Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of things that we did after either trailers were released or actually in some cases after the movie was released uh for star wars um specifically uh one of which was the the hands breaking out of the chains, another was like this this like eye glint or a on um Anakin, where he like smiles and he kind of does this little glint. and then I think we removed a blink from um from uh Natalie Portman in that same sequence, and then we also did uh, oh, the sparks when Django gets his head cut off, it was released without sparks on the ground, and George wanted sparks, so we added them in at the last minute and the movie was already out. We were like, what the hell what's going on? But it was one of the first digital releases. And apparently you, you could get away with it. And we were like, ah, isn't this in the f- theaters Isn't this on film. And it's like, Oh, it's not on film. Oh, so this is going to be the way films are released now. Just uh, kind of eye opening when, you know, you think you're done and then your shot shows up again with sparks on it. And you're like, what? what's going on? And where do the sparks from? Like really like on sand,
0: and back to the river sequence this is where we really see Paul become a hero he swims away from the cage and causes a distraction by climbing a crane that sits in the water so Paul climbs the crane and draws attention away from the grumpy spino waving his arms and shouting in the same way he probably shouts at customers that leave his store without buying anything Grant dives under the water and finds the flare gun He fires two shots, one hitting the Spino, and the other landing in the water, igniting the gasoline. Hanging by 2 arms from the crane until suddenly it collapses, Paul falls. He falls into the water as the Spino trots away. And it's this shot of the Spino leaving that really shows how impressive the CGI is. Good or bad... The river sequence ends with a moment that certainly reminds most people of Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. After it seems that Indy has fallen off a cliff while on the back of a tank, his father and friends look over the edge, shocked that he has died, only to have Indy crawl up and walk over to behind them.
4: I thought I'd lost you, boy.
0: I you had to, sir. It's one of my favorite bits of the indie franchise, so I guess I'm not too disappointed that Jurassic Park 3 attempted to create their own version of it, even though it's only a fraction as effective in this scene. You can't leave me like that. I'm not going anywhere! Instantly, as a 13 year old, I'm like, oh, that's an Indiana Jones reference, like a recreation of that moment, but just not quite as good. But still, It's good enough. Dan's JP3 page. Back in 2000 and 2001, I was constantly checking for updates, rumors, set pictures, whatever I could find that would give me more info about the upcoming JP3. Luckily, as a Jurassic fan, there was Dan's JP3 page. It was a daily thing to check the website. As a kid and a diehard fan of J.P., I really didn't care if a rumor gave something away. I wanted to know everything about the film. And with J.P. 3, the rumors and stories were at times a little bit wild. There's the famous William H. Macy quote that even 20 years later still gets brought up in conversations about the film. Quote, The script has been evolving and being rewritten as we go. And what you want to say is, who launched a $100 million ship without a rudder? And who's getting fired for this? But that's the way it goes. That's the way they make these movies. Big deal. I think someone should be shot, but I'm not in charge, end quote. With quotes like that, Dan's website was a resource for fans and a place for J.P. lovers to come together. Pre-Facebook and Twitter, this was the online Jurassic Park community, and it's amazing how many fans I talk to about J.P. 3. There's often something in common, and that is a love for Dan's J.P. 3 page.
12: Stephen Ray Morris of the See Jurassic Right podcast. I participated very heavily on Dan's J.P. 3 page back in the day, Especially during the lead-up to Jurassic Park three, like probably between nineteen ninety nine. Uh, I don't know if I was on the internet as much, which <laughs> is funny to think about. Like, oh, I hadn't yet gone on the internet like before nineteen ninety nine or something like that. But uh, no, because I was uh, I uh, I was eleven, uh, or no, well, I guess because I, I went I went to fr- I was freshman year of high school in two thousand one. So then I would have been 14. So yeah, I was 14 the summer of JP three. So yeah. So like 13, 14 started going on the internet discovered. I don't know how I would have discovered dance JP three page. I probably just searched like Jurassic park news or something, but, uh, but yeah, so I was heavily like really involved. Like I would say like dance JP three page was probably one of the first like online communities I was part of. And It just seemed like such a it seemed like such a like the chaos of the making of that film and the rumors and everything. It's just interesting that there it's it's I mean, just from what I know of it, like there's just so many mysteries left in that movie. So to me, uh, my girlfriend and I, it's like we bonded over our love of JP three because it's the movie that like because it's missing the most like it. There's there's so much to talk about, if that makes sense. It's funny, actually, uh, I, in life I claim that I never win raffles or contests, but one of the only contests I've ever won is a Dan's JP3 uh, contest where I won a prize pack of, like, the sticker book and the novelization and all that stuff, uh, and I'm still very proud of that. So, who was behind the page?
7: While
0: many people like myself visited the page, it wasn't something I thought much about until now.
7: I'm Dan Finkelstein. I created... Dan's jp3 page.com the world's biggest Jurassic Park 3 website <laughs> yeah, the site the site's still up it's a uh, Dan's site now if you want to actually hit the real thing yeah I mean it's nothing's really happening I think there's still people that occasionally post in the message board um, amazingly enough but yeah it still exists
0: so in my memory you also had a page for the lost world when did you decide to switch over and add a JP three page?
7: Yeah, I did have a lost world page, which actually I was looking for recently. I can't find it, so I'm not sure where it went, but I did have a lost world page. And then towards the end of that, when people started talking about Jurassic park three, people were like, well, you know, are you going to make a JP three page? So I said, I might, might as well. And at the time I was working for, I was in college. I was working for an ISP, um, so I had access to the ability to make websites like with real domain names. But you know, back in the day, having a real domain name was not as easy as it was is today. So, you know, and there wasn't there wasn't like WordPress, I think had just started then. So, but I really wanted to, I was very interested. I've always been interested in computers and programming. So I really wanted to sort of make everything involved with the site, you know, make a message board make a voting booth, make sort of a chat room at one point I had. So and I guess I get, so it was combining two things. It was combining my obviously love for Jurassic Park and programming and building websites, which I still do today. So but thankfully I get paid for it now.
0: <laughs> do you ever get emails from people like me asking about the page? Uh,
7: rarely. <laughs> so it was kind of surprised to, to see the email. But yeah, there is a there is a couple of Facebook groups um, that get some posts there's a Dan's JP3 like alumni <laughs> Facebook group there's people I still talk to that I that I am sort of met back in the day and then you know we've moved on to other things in our lives but we still sort of that's how we started so
0: looking back on the film what do you think of it now does it still hold up
7: Um, I, you know, I think it still holds up pretty well I mean I'm not a movie critic or anything but it's it's fun it's a popcorn movie I mean Occasionally, you just want to have something on, the, or you know, something in the background. It's great for. Um, I think the score is underappreciated. Um, you know, it's no, it's not a John Williams' score, but it's it's pretty good. I have it on my computer, listen to it every so often.
0: But yeah, I think it's a good movie. Do you remember how you could put the soundtrack CD in your computer and then it'd play the trailer? I
7: remember that there was. Some, I remember when that first came out. They were going to have like an online chat to get to the chat, you needed to put the CD in. So there was, everyone had to run out and get the CD. But then I think, you know, I had, I I scrambled to to email my contacts at Universal, like, do we really need the CD? And apparently, eventually it came out that you didn't need the CD. (laughs) But.
0: Did you develop any relationships with the crew or get to speak, like actually speak with the main cast?
7: You know, all the JP3 page stuff culminated. I talked to Joe Johnston. Um, Towards the end, I talked to Sam Neill. That was that was really cool. I was gonna go. I don't even remember what happened. I was gonna go to the press junket actually. You know, like I was a twenty year old kid um, at a press junket, um, but I didn't go for some reason. I think it I think it inter- interfered with my work, or there was a scheduling conflict. But I instead of that, I talked to Sam Neil on the phone.
0: How did you get to talk to Sam Neill? Was that you were reaching out to them? Or they were they reaching out to you?
7: I was talking to the Universal. They had a company doing PR, like scheduling um, press junkets, that kind of thing. And I think, but because I didn't go to the press junket in LA, in, instead of that, they let me talk to Sam Neill um, from my apartment in Seattle while I was working for Microsoft. And I remember I couldn't figure out how to record it. Um, like it was before the age of iPhones and I just had a, I had a house phone and I'm like, well, how am I going to record this conversation? So I had to like run out to Radio Shack um, and get something from my phone. And I like right before the interview somewhere on my computer or an old computer is the interview. I'll, if I ever find it, I'll send it to you. But, and I was talking to him from, from Australia or New Zealand, wherever he I think he was in New Zealand, it was just amazing. I mean, I can't believe I got through it <laughs> without like being a blubbering mess, yeah, and I think i I asked him some real dumb questions, like I remember I remember hearing that he has a winery, I think his winery is called two paddocks so i said did you did you name it two paddocks because of the like dinosaur paddocks?" <laughs> and he's like, "No, I think here in New Zealand, we just call things paddocks, so I'm like, oh, okay." <laughs>
0: How were you getting your JP3 News? Was that fans submitting or the studio or the crew?
7: Yeah, it was It was definitely a mix. I would, I would get a lot of stuff from uh, Ain't It Cool News at the time and Harry Knowles. But then after a while, as more people started coming to the site, people started sending me stuff um, directly. And obviously that all kind of built till I got, I think it was, I don't know exactly, it was March, I think, when I got an email from an very strange very odd looking email address it was dinoflick at aol.com which I don't think I've ever told anyone but that was Joe Johnston and Whoa, um, what? yeah <laughs> so yeah he emailed me it was right after the news came out about the accident in Hawaii during filming um, I think there were two accidents where barge flipped over tossed all this stuff into the water um, it caused delays of filming I think no one really got hurt But, um, and then, I I don't know if you talk about it on your podcast, but then William H. Macy got really pissed off, and he said some crazy stuff, like, you know, someone should be shot, and (laughs) he got all in trouble for that, and I think he had to apologize to Steven Spielberg, and that I guess that caused um, Joe Johnson to try to do some damage control. So um, he sent me a statement, which I put on the site, and then we started sort of a communication between then and the time that... The movie started it was, you know, we, we talked to each, we never talked on the phone, but we talked via email and he answered all sorts of questions.
0: Are you sure it was him? Yeah.
7: He just said, Oh, Joe Johnson here. And, and it's weird. Like I didn't ask, I didn't respond right away saying, Oh, you, this is not Joe Johnson. Cause I just had a feeling it was him. Probably in retrospect, I should, should have said something like, can I call you to verify? But I kind of just took his word for it. It just seemed real. Um, I could forward you the emails too. I still have them. And sometimes he would say like, you know, don't post this or don't quote me directly, but he would just give me information, which I would dole out little by little.
0: So to clarify, Joe Johnston contacted you from an AOL email account called Dino Flick. He,
7: he, he really seemed to get that, you know, keeping the fans happy is a powerful thing. Um, you know, at one point he even asked, He said, you know, you might be hearing from me, and we might need to, I think he was trying to fight for some sort of shots he wanted or for some CGI he wasn't getting money for. Um, So he kind of wanted to organize a campaign to get the fans to sort of push Universal to let him do that. But apparently that that all got resolved without us having to, (laughs) the fans sort of storming the gates. The other source I should have, should say is that um, this guy, Bob. Jasper who he works in Kauai. He's kind of like everyone on Kauai knows him. He ran a movie tour website or a movie tour business. So he's the guy who actually sent me the information when the barge flipped over. So I posted that and that's what prompted Bill Macy to sort of, to sort of speak out about what was going on. And he wasn't happy.
0: Dan was kind enough to forward me a handful of emails between him and the very likely Joe Johnston. DinoFlick at AOL.com I will read for Dan in the normal voice I have now but for Joe Johnston I'll try and make my voice sound a little bit older email dated Thursday March 8th 2001 at 12.04am subject a response to an email titled no subject from Dan to Joe Johnston wow I'm still a little bit in shock that I actually received an email from Joe Johnston It's truly an honor to talk to the top man in charge of JP3. Many thanks for dropping in and clearing up some stuff. I've been a little worried about the film since William H. Macy's comments surfaced back in December, but I figured he must be exaggerating, at least a little. Was it true nine different writers worked on the script? I guess the big question on everyone's mind right now is when exactly the JP3 trailer will be released. You've probably seen the results of the poll on my website. Everyone wants one, and it certainly would boost the hype level. USA Today only gave it 5 out of 10. Another question several people have raised recently is about the amount of CGI that is going to be used in the film. It seems like Stan Winston's animatronic spino is taking the spotlight because of how massive it is, but how extensively is he going to be used? A lot of people, myself included, feel that CGI usually looks better than animatronics. Anyway, thanks again for emailing. Now I can bother you whenever I have a question. Seriously though, Congrats on a successful shoot and good luck with the post-production stuff. Everyone in the JP3 community, and it's huge, if you haven't noticed, is rooting for you and your crew. Dan. And Joe Johnson's response? Dan, just to clarify a little misinformation. Regarding the negative comments by Bill Macy, you have to keep in mind the incredible hardship the cast went through during the making of this film. They were in constant discomfort in rain, mud, cold night exteriors, and dangerous stunts, many of which were performed by the actors themselves. They had to work in close proximity to animatronics, creatures that had a combined force of over 1,300 horsepower. They had to be harnessed and hung from cables, sometimes upside down. They were dropped 50 feet into icy water. They were bruised, scraped, cut, knocked down, and submerged underwater in a closed cage. Conditions like this can wear anyone's patience to the breaking point, and I think Bill was simply letting off a little steam. Deservedly so. Not one member of the cast ever said, I can't do another take. More often than not, they volunteered another take in order to improve the scene. As for the snail's pace of production, Bill may be exaggerating a little. Under the circumstances, I'm very happy with where we ended up, schedule-wise. The movie is scary, funny, intense, moving, startling, and contains just the right amount of barely-controlled chaos. As they say, you'll have to pay for the entire seat, but you'll only need the edge. Email dated Friday, June 1st, 2001, 1119 AM. From Dan to Dinoflick. Hey, Joe. I just wanted to drop you a quick line to ask you about a story I posted this morning. Randy Newman's Big Hat No Cattle on the JP3 soundtrack? As I said on the site, I never thought I'd mention Randy Newman and Jurassic Park in the same sentence. Smiley face. I was also wondering if you had done any test screenings of the film, and what the test audience thought about it. Hope to meet you at the press junket at the end of the month. Someone at Universal is attempting to get me down there. Joe's response? Hi Dan. There's a scene in the beginning of the film where Big Hat is playing in the background, but relates perfectly to the hidden agenda of the principles. One of the truly great things about working with Steven Spielberg is that you don't have to preview your movie. Previews are usually misleading and are seldom helpful, especially when there's a self-appointed expert interpreting the results for you. Instead, we run the film for a dozen friends and then sit around and chat to see if there are any holes in the logic or missed opportunities. See you later, Joe. Email dated Sunday, June 10th, 2001, 2.27pm, from Dan to Dino Flick. The big question I have in my mind is really about the problems on the JP3 set. We heard about barges falling over, stuntmen and actors getting scratched up, etc. Now I'm not sure if this is considered the norm for big budget action flicks, or that I'm just hearing about it because I got reports from people on the set. Did you find JP3 to be a more problematic shoot than your past special effects films? I read a report which said you got really angry at one point during shooting. Also, was the original ending substantially different than the one you went back to Hawaii to shoot? Joe's response. The only time I ever get upset is when someone doesn't do the job he or she is being paid to do. The crew is so professional that this rarely happens. Working in this business is a privilege in my opinion. I rarely raise my voice at anyone. I save it for when it's been earned and that only happened twice on this show. The first time was entirely my mistake. I misunderstood the problem and thought someone had dropped the ball, which was not the case. The second time, it was fully earned and then some. It's the crew that makes the movie. The director and the producer owe everything to the crew. And I had one of the best crews I've ever worked with on JP3. Shelley Johnson, the director of photography, created a world that was far better than I'd ever imagined it looking. And he did it quickly. Bob Babb in The Key Grip. Did everything that everyone else couldn't in addition to his own job. Really incredible. Don Elliott, the special effects consultant, pulled off physical effects including falling airplanes, sinking boats, toppling cranes, and enough rain to float the ark. Cheryl Tack was assistant to me and the producer. She has four arms and two heads. I could go on for days about the incredible crew. Regarding the ending, we had a wonderful opportunity to cut the movie, then write the ending and go back and shoot it. That almost never happens but maybe it should more often. We changed the direction the ending was going in. In this next email, Joe directly answers Dan's questions one by one. Email date, Thursday, June 28th, 2001, 1229 AM. From Dino Flick to Dan's JP3 page. Hi Dan, sorry it's taken me a while to get back to you. I came back to LA from Skywalker to find the office had yanked my DSL line. I'm now sharing a phone line with producer Larry Franco. Dan's question, I was just wondering what will the press see tonight, a completed version or a previous screening copy? Joe's response? They saw the latest answer print with the last of the effects shots cut into it. It's not absolutely finished, but it's as close as we could get in the time we had. There are still some color timing issues and a couple of sound fixes to go in. Dan's question? I also hope you could give me the scoop as to what the audience response was. What do you think they felt about the movie? Joe. I actually wasn't in the press screening, but was told by the editor that the journalist actually applauded extensively at the end. He was told this never happens in press screenings. I wish I'd been there. I had gone to an earlier screening for the cast members who were involved in the junket, they loved it. Of course, they are the cast, but they seemed genuinely overjoyed. Much backslapping and handshaking afterward. I have yet to see it with an audience of people that I don't know. Hopefully, that's coming soon. What I'd really like to experience is a screening made up entirely of fans of Dan's JP3 page. In all caps, that screening would rock. Exclamation point. Dan's question. I don't suppose you have any copies on VHS that you're willing to send out. Joe's response. I'd rather fly you down here for a screening. I'm still working on Universal to undo the mess they've gotten into with the internet writers. Stand by on that one. And the last email, Dated Friday, July 6th, 2001, 3.34 p.m. Subject, hi. From DinoFlick to Dan's JP3 page. Hey Dan, you just caught me. The offices are closing down. I'm going to load up the last of my stuff. The AOL account will be shut down or transferred to another show, but I don't think I'll have access to it. I'm not sure if DinoFlick will still be able to receive mail or not. You're the webmaster, you tell me. The running time is around 94 minutes, but I still don't understand anyone's alarm with this. As I've said before, this film has more dinosaur shots, both CG and animatronic, than the other two Jurassic Parks combined. What is the hang-up with running time? Makes no sense. Do your readers think that longer is better? You'll have to set them straight on this, Dan. It's now up to you. Anyway, nice chatting with you. I'll be off to Montana shortly to dig with Jack Horner. As you may know, the official premiere of JP3 is being held in Bozeman as a fundraiser for the Museum of the Rockies. I'll be at the dig for the remainder of the summer helping Jack excavate one of the largest specimens of Edmontosaurus ever found. Well over 40 feet long. A hadrosaur, mind you. He also has five separate T-Rexes still in the ground, including one that he believes is over 90% complete. Plenty to keep the volunteers busy for the rest of the season. Cheers. Hope you like the movie and farewell. Signing off, over and out. Joe. Before I wrap up episode six, this JP3 podcast will only be eight episodes. And for the eighth and final episode, I'm hoping to hear from more Jurassic fans. You can write me an email or send an audio recording of no more than three minutes to stuckonsorna at gmail.com. Feel free to share any JP3 thoughts. Some ideas could be simply telling me why you love the film, why you hate the film, or what are your thoughts on the ending. Anything, really. And here's an example of what you can share, just a small clip from a larger conversation with a JP3 fan as he shares his memory of seeing the film for the first time.
13: I'm Barrett Baker. I I remember distinctly um, going to the hospital, Um, my family sneaking my grandfather out, my uncle actually picking him up and carrying him, putting him in the car and making sure he was fine. We went and we saw the movie. I wouldn't say it was his dying wish, but it was one of the things that he really wanted to do was to go see that movie.
0: On the next episode. So I just received a physical copy in the mail of a JP-3 draft dated April 12, 2000, by Peter Buckman. It's pretty interesting, and it's approximately 50 pages. Just to briefly read from page 4. Grant passionately continues, Isla Sorna must be opened up for true scientific investigation. A substation on the island will give us a chance to study raptors in their own environment. The crowd rises to its feet. Grant says, we must take science back to the scientists.